Hey there, and welcome to the Leap Podcast. Striving to meet the greatest challenges facing humanity, Leap is a global tech event and a platform for unearthing the minds of some of the most influential people on the planet. Join our conversations as we explore the pivotal role technology has in reshaping our world. Welcome to another edition of the Leap In Podcast Series. I'm Richard Spur. Today's focus is on artificial intelligence, and more specifically, how to manage the risks that are inextricably linked with AI's enormous potential. We're thrilled to be joined by Ariel Wallano, Managing Director of FinServe Experts. Ariel has spent his entire 35-year career helping both governments and commercial enterprises realise the potential of emerging technologies. He's advised governments, central banks and financial regulators around the world and was recently engaged by Google to deliver training on AI risk management to their own go-to-market team. Now, artificial intelligence is already changing our lives and the pace of that change is accelerating. Quite naturally, it causes a lot of concern and given the unintended consequences we have all experienced from other technological breakthroughs, these concerns are well-founded. Since it's unlikely that we'll be able to halt the spread of AI or even slow it appreciably, it's critical that we manage the risk of using AI, both real and perceived, effectively and diligently. In this podcast, one of the global thought leaders in AI risk management, Ariel Wallano of FinServe Experts, will give you a glimpse into how this is done. Ariel, you're very welcome. Are people right? to be worried about AI? Hi, Richard. The short answer is yes, people are right to be concerned. Now, there are many different kinds of concerns, um, all the way from bias to safety to will the evil overmind take over. These concerns, some of them are perceived, some of them are very real, but both the real and the perceived risks need to be well managed for AI to realize its potential to make our lives better. Can you give me an example of a real and a perceived risk, perhaps. The risk of bias is, is very real. AI has the potential to make credit available at affordable rates uh, to many people who can't access credit now. Uh, but doing that in a non-biased way is hard and takes a lot of work. The risk uh, that is perceived, perhaps, is the, the risk of self-driving cars. The real-world data says that self-driving cars are about you know, eight to 10 times safer uh, than having humans behind the wheel. But human gets into a crash and kills someone doesn't cause a headline. Self-driving car kills someone does. So that risk needs to be managed, even though it is largely a perceived risk. How do you go about identifying the risks for a specific use of artificial intelligence? It's important to start by understanding that AI is sort of a blanket umbrella term uh, given both you know, by lay people and indeed by technologists for a bewildering variety of different capabilities. So for instance, ChatGPT's ability to read a regular English sentence and understand what you're asking, to predictive modeling, uh, as in the credit score example, to driving cars, to medical diagnosis. Each of these different kinds of capabilities has a very different risk profile. So for AI credit scoring, you're very interested in bias. Bias probably doesn't come into self-driving cars, but safety does. So you have to understand 
the risks that are inherent for a specific category of, or type of AI and then give a high level framework for classifying it so it could be repeatable and you can compare you know, apples to oranges and understand what the differences are in each. One good example comes from when I led the team that used AI-driven credit scoring uh, with M Kenya's M-Pesa mobile payments platform. Now in Kenya, the problem is not so much racism as tribalism, but the problem is the same, that models can pick up bias. We had thought that just by being ethical and sensible, uh, we could come up with a non-biased model. So we built a model that did not, for instance, look at how your last name was constructed or where you lived. Uh, and we were very uh, dismayed and surprised that after one or two, three rounds of training, bias had crept into the model uh, against a certain tribe. So we did some digging around and we found a head scratcher that uh, one of the predictors that the model was using was whether or not you drank a certain kind of beer. Apparently, this was a statistically significant predictor of credit performance. Well, it turns out that beer had a cultural affinity to one tribe. <laughs> Without us knowing it, bias had crept into the model. Uh, we, of course, took that out. But the, the important lesson there is that when you're trying to remove bias, you have to not only be ethical and sensible in the beginning, but proactively audit on a periodic basis to identify completely unexpected ways that bias might creep in. Now, how you apply risk management is going to be different when you're doing medical diagnosis or self-driving cars, making sure that you're not using confidential data in Gen AI, but the, the methodology is the same. Can you talk a little more about the process once you've identified the real and the perceived risks, what you then do about them? The science of risk management actually is not new. Many of the techniques we are still using uh, were developed and refined in the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, and they work, which is why they haven't evolved much since then. There are two problems, however. One is that because they are old and they are perceived as boring, uh, they are not taught. So I had the privilege of working with Google. Google, I assure you, does not need my help uh, in AI. They have some of the best and brightest minds uh, in the world, bewilderingly intelligent, in fact. Um, but most, you know, most of the young technologists have never had a risk management course and never learned these things because they aren't being taught in the universities. So it's a question of bringing a very established methodology and framework for risk management uh, to people who have no experience on how to use it. I'm interested actually to know more about the example you gave about the tribe in, in Kenya. What did you do in fact there? The first thing we did is we took the biased elements out of the model. And that's just really a question of having some uh, ethical courage to say, Yes, we have a, an accurate predictor. So, uh, you know, the, the, this beer drinking did actually produce a statistically significant result and said, we're going to take it out, even though it helps improve the accuracy of our model. So that's just a, you know, that's a question of having executives and leadership uh, with, the, with, you know, with the political will to do that. The second thing, though, is to build in, as I said, a proactive feedback loop. So what we did in this case is we put in place uh, a business process, so nothing technology at all, that said once every quarter we would audit the model for bias. Now, interestingly, uh, there is a law to this effect in New York City around recruiting. If you use AI for recruiting in New York City, you must have an external bias audit once a year. Um, it's, a, it's the first law of its kind, and it's a municipal-level law as opposed to a state or a federal or you know, an international regulation. Uh, but it seems to be working really well. 
If you had, Ariel, to pick the single most critical success factor for managing AI risk effectively, what would that factor be? It would be patterns of accountability. And I'll give another story uh, to explain this, though this isn't actually uh, AI. This is just regular analytics. Uh, There was a a case uh, in Europe that went all the way to a Supreme Court in which uh, two people sat down next to each other in an airline, got to talking, and found out that one had paid 50 euros uh, for the seat and the other had paid 500 euros for the same seat on the same flight. They sued the airline for price discrimination, uh, and the airline's defense was, we didn't discriminate. There is nothing in our, our, our pricing algorithm that pays any attention to who you are. The airline lost the case. The logic of the ruling was, it doesn't matter. It's your algorithm. If it ends up producing a biased result, uh, you're at fault. This is really, really well, you know, a great example of how this works well in practice is in medical diagnosis. AI has the chance to improve performance of even the best doctors in the world because it can give you, you know, a, an entire world's worth of medical research, which even the best doctor won't be able to access all of it. But it has been very, very clearly positioned as a decision support tool. The doctor is the one making the diagnosis. The doctor is the one signing the diagnosis. The doctor is the one sued for malpractice if the diagnosis is negligently wrong. And doctors know that. They know that AI can help them a lot, but every time that they are making a diagnosis, they're putting their reputations on the line. Patterns of accountability have not been worked out at the same level. A great example being self-driving cars. So if a self-driving car gets into an accident, who's, who's accountable? Is it the driver? Is it the maker of the car? Is it the uh, you know the operator of the street the car is on? Is it the software company who sold the algorithm that the car maker bought? We don't know yet. I mean, it's going to take a lot of case law and legislation to work that out. But that is really the key to and you know and as you said, the most critical success factor because once you establish those patterns of accountability, you can make it insurable. And insurance is the way we manage risk commercially throughout the world. How does your firm engage to help people who are managing AI risk? We do that in several ways. One is that we perform external assessments. So we will come in and uh, we will do an independent review of an AI solution, identify the risk, and make suggestions about plans to mitigate that risk. Uh, The second way is like we did for Google. We will come in and we will train teams on how to do this themselves. And then finally, you know, in some cases, we will come in and we will actually help uh, implement uh, the AI itself uh, and include the risk management built in to the actual operating platform. Do you think that the approaches used to manage risk in AI will standardize over time? Absolutely, yes. It will take some time. I would guess a couple decades uh, to really be standardized. But if you look at you know the standardization of payments, uh, you know, which uh, you know, which eventually coalesced under SWIFT, or, or if you look even more recently at the risk management regimes that regulators have started using uh, after the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, that's actually a great example because it showed how risk management became part of a key regulatory change. Up until 2008 and 2009, the primary accountability for attesting affordability of a loan was the borrower. That actually makes sense because if a borrower asks for a loan, he or she is the person in the best position to say, I can afford this loan. And that's how it was for you know, time immemorial up to 2008, 2009. 
What changed was there was smoking gun evidence that lenders were in possession of data where they knew for a fact, indisputably, that somebody couldn't afford the loan and were granting the loans anyway because they had no responsibility. The responsibility for assessing affordability was on the borrower. What changed as a result uh, around most mature economies in the world, both you know, in Europe, US, Asia, is that the responsibility for attesting affordability has shifted from the borrower to the lender because of this smoking gun evidence. And because the lenders were now institutionally responsible, uh, regulators had to provide them a framework for expressing uh, their risk, which is what has happened. These sorts of things will happen with AI as well. Now, you've published an article recently about the evolution of technology risk. Maybe, uh, if you'd be so kind, uh, you can take me through the blob stage. <laughs> sure. Actually, this goes back to the start of our conversation. If you think about the primary questions that people are asking about AI, is it safe? Will I get hurt using it? Will I be liable for using it? Uh, is it biased? Um, will it cause people to lose jobs? These are primal and largely irreducible questions. And what's interesting, and I've done this research, if you look back to say the late 1800s, early 1900s, one of the major technology revolutions going on at that time was that the world's logistics networks were transforming from sail to steam. And if you look at what was being written at the time, it was the exact same questions, the same irreducible fears. Are people going to lose jobs? Is it safe? Am I personally liable? Will people get hurt using this new technology? So these fears are remarkably constant. Only the, you know, the technology those fears are applied to changes. That's a key hallmark of what I call the blob stage. In other words, people haven't started to specifically categorize, quantify, measure, uh, and ultimately model uh, the risks associated with using a specific technology. For us to get out of the blob stage, we need to start doing what I'm talking about now, which is structuring, applying risk management methods. And that is happening. So, you know, if you look at an insurance company like Munich Re, they're offering AI-based insurance. So they've clearly moved beyond the blob stage. But most of what is being written uh, and talked about in AI still is in the blob stage. Let's talk about Leap, your second time. What are you going to be bringing to the conference? What are you going to be talking about? And what do you hope people listening to you will come away with? I'm going to be talking about AI risk uh, and trying to give people a sense of how to begin managing it. What I hope to get out of it, Leap is an astounding conference. Uh, my typical expectation for technology conferences uh, is actually quite low. They're very important to the brand of my firm, to establishing our credibility, uh, and they're a great place to meet people. But I rarely go, to be blunt, for the content. The content in Leap blew me away last year. Excellent. Uh, I, I ended up learning so much from the actual presentations that I changed my, uh, you know, my time budget, if you will, to actually attend more of the sessions. Well, we're hugely looking forward to listening to you there, to seeing you there. And thank you so much for talking to us, not least of all about the blob stage. Ariel, what a no. Great pleasure talking to you. Join us again for another edition of the Leap In podcast series. Mm -hmm.